Book five, chapter seven of the history of the conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book five, chapter seven. Guatemothin, new emperor of the Aztecs, preparations for the march, military code, Spaniards cross the Sierra, enter Tezcuco, Prince Ixtlilxochitl. While the events related in the preceding chapter were passing, an important change had taken place in the Aztec monarchy. Montezuma's brother and successor, Quitlahua, had suddenly died of the smallpox, after a brief reign of four months. Brief, but glorious, for it had witnessed the overthrow of the Spaniards and their expulsion from Mexico. On the death of their warlike chief, the electors were convened as usual to supply the vacant throne. It was an office of great responsibility in the dark hour of their fortunes. The choice fell on Cuauhtemotzin, or Guatemothin, as euphoniously corrupted by the Spaniards. He was nephew to the two last monarchs, and married his cousin, the beautiful princess Tequichpo, Montezuma's daughter. He was not more than twenty-five years old, and elegant in his person for an Indian, says one who had seen him often, valiant and so terrible that his followers trembled in his presence. He did not shrink from the perilous post that was offered to him, and, as he saw the tempest gathering darkly around, he prepared to meet it like a man. Though young, he had ample experience in military matters, and had distinguished himself above all in the bloody conflicts of the capital. By means of his spies, Guatemothin made himself acquainted with the movements of the Spaniards, and their design to besiege the capital. He prepared for it by sending away the useless part of the population, while he called in his potent vassals from the neighbourhood. He continued the plans of his predecessor for strengthening the defences of the city, reviewed his troops, and stimulated them by prizes to excel in their exercises. He made harangues to his soldiers to rouse them to a spirit of desperate resistance. He encouraged his vassals throughout the empire to attack the white men wherever they were to be met with, setting a price on their heads, as well as the persons of all who should be brought alive to him in Mexico. And it was no uncommon thing for the Spaniards to find hanging up in the temples of the conquered places the arms and accoutrements of their unfortunate countrymen who had been seized and sent to the capital for sacrifice. Such was the young monarch who was now called to the tottering throne of the Aztecs, worthy by his bold and magnanimous nature to sway the sceptre of his country in the most flourishing period of her renown, and now in her distress devoting himself in the true spirit of a patriotic prince to uphold her falling fortunes, or bravely perish with them. We must now return to the Spaniards in Tlaxcala, where we left them preparing to resume their march on Mexico. Their commander had the satisfaction to see his troops tolerably complete in their appointments, varying indeed according to the condition of the different reinforcements which had arrived from time to time, but on the whole superior to those of the army with which he had first invaded the country. 
his whole force fell little short of six hundred men, forty of whom were cavalry, together with eighty arquebusiers and crossbowmen. The rest were armed with sword and target, and with the copper-headed pike of Chinantla. He had nine cannon of a moderate calibre, and was indifferently supplied with powder. As his forces were drawn up in order of march, Cortes rode through the ranks, exhorting his soldiers, as usual with him on these occasions, to be true to themselves and the enterprise in which they were embarked. He told them they were to march against rebels, who had once acknowledged allegiance to the Spanish sovereign, against barbarians, the enemies of their religion. They were to fight the battles of the cross and of the crown, to fight their own battles, to wipe away the stain from their arms, to avenge their injuries and the loss of the dear companions who had been butchered on the field or on the accursed altar of their sacrifice. Never was there a war which offered higher incentives to the Christian cavalier, a war which opened to him riches and renown in this life, and an imperishable glory in that to come. They answered with acclamations that they were ready to die in defence of the faith, and would either conquer or leave their bones with those of their countrymen in the waters of the Tetcuco. The army of the Allies next passed in review before the general. It is variously estimated by writers from a hundred and ten to a hundred and fifty thousand soldiers. The palpable exaggeration, no less than the discrepancy, shows that little reliance can be placed on any estimate. It is certain, however, that it was a multitudinous array, consisting not only of the flower of the Tlascalan warriors, but of those of Cholula, Tepeaca, and the neighbouring territories which had submitted to the Castilian crown. Cortes, with the aid of Marina, made a brief address to his Indian allies. He reminded them that he was going to fight their battles against their ancient enemies. He called on them to support him in a manner worthy of their renowned republic. To those who remained at home, he committed the charge of aiding in the completion of the brigantines, on which the success of the expedition so much depended and he requested that none would follow his banner who were not prepared to remain till the final reduction of the capital. This address was answered by shouts, or rather yells of defiance, showing the exultation felt by his Indian confederates at the prospect of at last avenging their manifold wrongs and humbling their haughty enemy. Before setting out on the expedition, Cortes published a code of ordinances, as he terms them, or regulations for the army, too remarkable to be passed over in silence. The preamble sets forth that in all institutions, whether divine or human, if the latter have any worth, order is the great law. The ancient chronicles inform us that the greatest captains in past times owed their successes quite as much to the wisdom of their ordinances as to their own valour and virtue. The situation of the Spaniards eminently demanded such a code. A mere handful of men as they were, in the midst of countless enemies, most cunning in the management of their weapons and in the art of war. The instrument then reminds the army that the conversion of the heathen is the work most acceptable in the eye of the Almighty, and one that will be sure to receive his support. It calls on every soldier to regard this as the prime object of the expedition, without which the war would be manifestly unjust, and every acquisition made by it a robbery. 
the general solemnly protests that the principal motive which operates in his own bosom is the desire to wean the natives from their gloomy idolatry and to impart to them the knowledge of a purer faith and next to recover for his master the emperor the dominions which of right belong to him the ordinances then prohibit all blasphemy against god or the saints Another law is directed against gaming, to which the Spaniards in all ages have been peculiarly addicted. Cortes, making allowance for the strong national propensity, authorises it under certain limitations, but prohibits the use of dice altogether. Then follow other laws against brawls and private combats, against personal taunts and the irritating sarcasms of rival companies, rules for the more perfect discipline of the troops, whether in camp or the field among others is one prohibiting any captain under pain of death from charging the enemy without orders a practice noticed as most pernicious and of too frequent occurrence showing the impetuous spirit and want of true military subordination in the bold cavaliers who followed the standard of cortes the last ordinance prohibits any man officer or private from securing to his own use any of the booty taken from the enemy whether it be gold silver precious stones feather-work stuffs slaves or other commodity however or wherever obtained in the city or in the field and requires him to bring it forthwith to the presence of the general or the officer appointed to receive it the violation of this law was punished with death and confiscation of property. So severe an edict may be thought to prove that, however much the conquistador may have been influenced by spiritual considerations, he was by no means insensible to those of a temporal character. These provisions were not suffered to remain a dead letter. The Spanish commander, soon after their proclamation, made an example of two of his own slaves, whom he hanged for plundering the natives. A similar sentence was passed on a soldier for the like offence, though he allowed him to be cut down before the sentence was entirely executed. Cortes knew well the character of his followers, rough and turbulent spirits, who required to be ruled with an iron hand yet he was not eager to assert his authority on light occasions the intimacy into which they were thrown by their peculiar situation perils and sufferings in which all equally shared and a common interest in the adventure induced a familiarity between men and officers most unfavourable to military discipline the general's own manners frank and liberal seemed to invite this freedom which on ordinary occasions he made no attempt to repress perhaps finding it too difficult or at least impolitic since it afforded a safety valve for the spirits of a licentious soldiery that if violently coerced might have burst forth into open mutiny but the limits of his forbearance were clearly defined and any attempt to overstep them or to violate the established regulations of the camp brought a sure and speedy punishment on the offender by thus tempering severity with indulgence, masking an iron will under the open bearing of a soldier, Cortes established a control over his band of bold and reckless adventurers, such as a pedantic martinet, scrupulous in enforcing the minutiae of military etiquette, could never have obtained. The ordinances, dated on the 22nd of December, were proclaimed to the assembled army on the 26th, 
Two days afterwards the troops were on their march. Notwithstanding the great force mustered by the Indian confederates, the Spanish general allowed but a small part of them now to attend him. He proposed to establish his headquarters at some place on the Tezcucan Lake, whence he could annoy the Aztec capital by reducing the surrounding country, cutting off the supplies, and thus placing the city in a state of blockade. The direct assault on Mexico itself he intended to postpone, until the arrival of the brigantines should enable him to make it with the greatest advantage. Meanwhile he had no desire to encumber himself with a superfluous multitude, whom it would be difficult to feed, and he preferred to leave them at Tlaxcala, whence they might convey the vessels, when completed, to the camp, and aid him in his future operations. Three routes presented themselves to Cortes, by which he might penetrate into the valley. He chose the most difficult, traversing the bold sierra which divides the eastern plateau from the western, and so rough and precipitous as to be scarcely practicable for the march of an army. He wisely judged that he should be less likely to experience annoyance from the enemy in this direction, as they might naturally confide in the difficulties of the ground. The first day the troops advanced five or six leagues, Cortes riding in the van at the head of his little body of cavalry. They halted at the village of Tetzmelokan, at the base of the mountain chain which traverses the country, touching at its southern limit the mighty Ithtakiwatl, or White Woman, white with the snows of the ages. At this village they met with a friendly reception, and on the following morning began the ascent of the Sierra. It was night before the wayworn soldiers reached the bald crest of the Sierra, where they lost no time in kindling their fires, and, huddling round their bivouacs, they warmed their frozen limbs and prepared their evening repast. With the earliest dawn the troops were again in motion. Mass was said, and they began their descent, more difficult and painful than their ascent on the day preceding, for, in addition to the natural obstacles of the road, they found it strewn with huge pieces of timber and trees, obviously felled for the purpose by the natives. Cortes ordered up a body of light troops to clear away the impediments, and the army again resumed its march, but with the apprehension that the enemy had prepared an ambuscade to surprise them when they should be entangled in the pass. They moved cautiously forward, straining their vision to pierce the thick gloom of the forests, where the wily foe might be lurking. But they saw no living thing except only the wild inhabitants of the woods, and flocks of the Thopilote, the voracious vulture of the country, which, in anticipation of a bloody banquet, hung like a troop of evil spirits on the march of the army. At length the army emerged on an open level, where the eye, unobstructed by intervening wood or hilltop, could range far and wide over the valley of Mexico. The magnificent vision new to many of the spectators filled them with rapture. Even the veterans of Cortes could not withhold their admiration, though this was soon followed by a bitter feeling, as they recalled the sufferings which had befallen them within these beautiful but treacherous precincts. It made us feel, says the lion-hearted conqueror in his letters, that we had no choice but victory or death, and our minds once resolved, we moved forward with as light a step as if we had been going on an errand of certain pleasure. 
As the Spaniards advanced, they beheld the neighbouring hilltops blazing with beacon fires, showing that the country was already alarmed and mustering to oppose them. The general called on his men to be mindful of their high reputation, to move in order, closing up their ranks, and to obey implicitly the commands of their officers. At every turn among the hills they expected to meet the forces of the enemy drawn up to dispute their passage, and, as they were allowed to pass the defiles unmolested, and drew near to the open plains, they were prepared to see them occupied by a formidable host, who would compel them to fight over again the battle of Otumba. But although clouds of dusky warriors were seen from time to time hovering on the highlands, as if watching their progress, they experienced no interruption, till they reached a barranca, or deep ravine, through which flowed a little river, crossed by a bridge partly demolished. On the opposite side a considerable body of Indians was stationed, as if to dispute the passage, but whether distrusting their own numbers, or intimidated by the steady advance of the Spaniards, they offered them no annoyance, and were quickly dispersed by a few resolute charges of cavalry. The army then proceeded, without molestation, to a small town called Coatepec, where they halted for the night. Before retiring to his own quarters, Cortés made the rounds of the camp with a few trusty followers to see that all was safe. He seemed to have an eye that never slumbered, and a frame incapable of fatigue. It was the indomitable spirit within which sustained him. Yet he may well have been kept awake through the watches of the night by anxiety and doubt. He was now but three leagues from Tezcuco, the far-famed capital of the Acoluans. He proposed to establish his headquarters, if possible, at this place. Its numerous dwellings would afford ample accommodations for his army. An easy communication with Tlaxcala, by a different route from that which he had traversed, would furnish him with the means of readily obtaining supplies from that friendly country, and for the safe transportation of the brigantines, when finished, to be launched on the waters of Tezcuco. But he had good reason to distrust the reception he should meet with in the capital, for an important revolution had taken place there since the expulsion of the Spaniards from Mexico, of which it will be necessary to give some account. The reader will remember that the cacique of that place, named Cacama, was deposed by Cortés during his first residence in the Aztec metropolis, in consequence of a projected revolt against the Spaniards, and that the crown had been placed on the head of a younger brother, Quiquitzea. The deposed prince was among the prisoners carried away by Cortés, and perished with the others in the terrible passage of the causeway, on the Noche Triste. His brother, afraid, probably, after the flight of the Spaniards, of continuing with the Aztecs, accompanied his friends in their retreat, and was so fortunate as to reach Tlaxcala in safety. Meanwhile a second son of Nezahualpili, named Cuanaco, claimed the crown, on his elder brother's death, as his own rightful inheritance. As he heartily joined his countrymen and the Aztecs in their detestation of the white men, his claims were sanctioned by the Mexican emperor. Soon after his accession, the new lord of Tezcuco had an opportunity of showing his loyalty to his imperial patron in an effectual manner. A body of forty-five Spaniards, ignorant of the disasters in Mexico, were transporting thither a large quantity of gold, at the very time their countrymen were on the retreat to Tlaxcala. 
as they passed through the Tethkukan territory, they were attacked by Koanako's orders, most of them massacred on the spot, and the rest sent for sacrifice to Mexico. The arms and accoutrements of these unfortunate men were hung up as trophies in the temples, and their skins, stripped from their dead bodies, were suspended over the bloody shrines, as the most acceptable offering to the offended deities. Some months after this event, the exiled prince, Quiquitzea, wearied with his residence in Tlaxcala, and pining for his former royal state, made his way back secretly to Tezcuco, hoping, it would seem, to raise a party there in his favour. But if such were his expectations, they were sadly disappointed, for no sooner had he set foot in the capital than he was betrayed to his brother, who, by the advice of Guatemotin, put him to death as a traitor to his country. Such was the posture of affairs in Tezcuco, when Cortes, for the second time, approached its gates, and well might he doubt not merely the nature of his reception there, but whether he would be permitted to enter it at all without force of arms. These apprehensions were dispelled the following morning, when, before the troops were well under arms, an embassy was announced from the lord of Tezcuco. It consisted of several nobles, some of whom were known to the companions of Cortes. They bore a golden flag in token of amity, and a present of no great value to Cortes. They brought also a message from the cacique, imploring the general to spare his territories, inviting him to take up his quarters in the capital, and promising on his arrival to become the vassal of the Spanish sovereign. Cortes dissembled the satisfaction with which he listened to these overtures, and sternly demanded of the envoys an account of the Spaniards who had been massacred, insisting at the same time on immediate restitution of the plunder. But the Indian nobles excused themselves by throwing the whole blame upon the Aztec emperor, by whose orders the deed had been perpetrated, and who now had possession of the treasure they urged cortes not to enter the city that day but to pass the night in the suburbs that their master might have time to prepare suitable accommodations for him the spanish commander however gave no heed to this suggestion but pushed forward his march and at noon on the thirty first of december fifteen twenty entered at the head of his legions the venerable walls of tezcuco he was struck, as when he before visited this populous city, with the solitude and silence which reigned throughout its streets. He was conducted to the palace of Nesahualpili, which was assigned as his quarters. It was an irregular pile of low buildings, covering a wide extent of ground, like the royal residence occupied by the troops in Mexico. It was spacious enough to furnish accommodations, not only for all the Spaniards, says Cortes, but for twice their number. He gave orders on his arrival that all regard should be paid to the persons and property of the citizens, and forbade any Spaniard to leave his quarters under pain of death. Alarmed at the apparent desertion of the place, as well as by the fact that none of its principal inhabitants came to welcome him, Cortes ordered some soldiers to ascend the neighbouring Teocali and survey the city. They soon returned with the report that the inhabitants were leaving it in great numbers, with their families and effects, some in canoes upon the lake, others on foot towards the mountains. The general now comprehended the import of the cacique's suggestion that the Spaniards should pass the night in the suburbs, 
in order to secure time for evacuating the city. He feared that the chief himself might have fled. He lost no time in detaching troops to secure the principal avenues where they were to turn back the fugitives and arrest the cacique if he was among the number. But it was too late. Guanaco was already far on his way across the lake to Mexico. Cortes now determined to turn this event to his own account by placing another ruler on the throne who should be more subservient to his interests. He called a meeting of the few principal persons still remaining in the city, and by their advice and ostensible election, advanced a brother of the late sovereign to the dignity which they declared vacant. The prince, who consented to be baptised, was a willing instrument in the hands of the Spaniards. He survived but a few months, and was succeeded by another member of the royal house, named Ixtlilxochitl who indeed, as general of his armies, may be said to have held the reins of government in his hands during his brother's lifetime. As this person was intimately associated with the Spaniards in their subsequent operations, to the success of which he essentially contributed, it is proper to give some account of his earlier history, which in truth is as much enveloped in the marvellous as that of any fabulous history of antiquity. He was a son, by a second queen, of the great Nesualpili. Some alarming prodigies at his birth, and the gloomy aspect of the planets, led the astrologers who cast his horoscope to advise the king his father to take away the infant's life, since, if he lived to grow up, he was destined to unite with the enemies of his country, and overturn its institutions and religion. But the old monarch replied, says the chronicler, that the time had arrived when the sons of Quetzalcoatl were to come from the east to take possession of the land, and if the Almighty had selected his child to cooperate with them in the work, his will be done. As the boy advanced in years, he exhibited a marvellous precocity, not merely of talent, but of mischievous activity, which afforded an alarming prognostic for the future. When about twelve years old, he formed a little corps of followers of about his own age, or somewhat older, with whom he practised the military exercises of his nation, conducting mimic fights, and occasionally assaulting the peaceful burghers, and throwing the whole city as well as palace into uproar and confusion. Some of his father's ancient counsellors, connecting this conduct with the predictions at his birth, saw in it such alarming symptoms that they repeated the advice of the astrologers to take away the prince's life, if the monarch would not see his kingdom one day given up to anarchy. This unpleasant advice was reported to the juvenile offender, who was so much exasperated by it, that he put himself at the head of a party of his young desperadoes, and entering the house of the offending councillors, dragged them forth, and administered to them the garrote, the mode in which the capital punishment was inflicted in Tezcuco. He was seized and brought before his father. When questioned as to his extraordinary conduct, he coolly replied that he had done no more than he had a right to do. The guilty ministers had deserved their fate by endeavouring to alienate his father's affections from him, for no other reason than his too great fondness for the profession of arms, the most honourable profession in the state, and the one most worthy of a prince. If they had suffered death, it was no more than they had intended for him. The wise Nezawalpili, says the chronicler, 
found much force in these reasons, and as he saw nothing low or sordid in the action, but rather the ebullition of a daring spirit, which in after-life might lead to great things, he contented himself with bestowing a grave admonition on the juvenile culprit. Whether this admonition had any salutary effect on his subsequent demeanour, we are not informed. It is said, however, that as he grew older, he took an active part in the wars of his country, and when no more than seventeen, had won for himself the insignia of a valiant and victorious captain. On his father's death he disputed the succession with his elder brother, Kakama. The country was menaced with a civil war, when the affair was compromised by his brother's ceding to him that portion of his territories which lay among the mountains. On the arrival of the Spaniards, the young chieftain, for he was scarcely twenty years of age, made, as we have seen, many friendly demonstrations towards them, induced, no doubt, by his hatred of Montezuma, who had supported the pretensions of Kakama. It was not, however, till his advancement to the lordship of Tezcuco that he showed the full extent of his good will. From that hour he became the fast friend of the Christians, supporting them with his personal authority and the whole strength of his military array and resources, which, although much shorn of their ancient splendour since the days of his father, were still considerable, and made him a most valuable ally. His important services have been gratefully commemorated by the Castilian historians, and history should certainly not defraud him of his just meed of glory the melancholy glory of having contributed more than any other chieftain of Anahuac to rivet the chains round the necks of his countrymen. End of Book 5, Chapter 7